0: Hey, welcome to the MongoDB podcast. I'm Nick Raboy, and I'm with my co-host, Mike Lynn. and in this episode, we're gonna be interviewing Mark Porter, the CTO of MongoDB. So Mark actually has a very fascinating story about his life in technology, his experiences working at very popular companies such as Oracle and even NASA, and then what actually brought him to MongoDB. By the end of this episode, you should have a better idea on who Mark Porter is and even have some inspiration in regards to growing your career in technology. We hope you enjoy the show. The only constant in software is change.
1: Software, data, and all things MongoDB. Welcome to the MongoDB podcast with your hosts, Michael Lin and Nick Raboy. Okay, Mark Porter, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. How are you doing today? It's great to be here today. I am doing great. Fantastic. So, a lot of folks listening may not know who you are. It'd be great if you start us out with an introduction. Who's Mark
2: Porter? So, I am currently the uh, CTO of MongoDB. I'm also the father of five, and I've been married for over 20 years. And uh, I've worked at Oracle, I've worked at NASA, and I've worked at a bunch of other places. I am relentlessly a technical dweeb, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> That's great.
1: <laughs> a technical dweeb. I love it. Uh, and I love the fact that when you introduce yourself, you talk about the fact that you're a father, I'm a father myself, and it's an important part of my life. Uh, I think I take that with me in in everything I do. Um, so tell us about your your journey as a, a technologist. You're obviously um, the CTO at MongoDB, a, a massively fast-growing Um, great place to work. Um, But what got you here? Tell us about your journey as a technologist.
2: So I was always in in TransFi puzzles when I was a young kid. And uh, way back when in 1975, 76, 77, I got involved in electronics. And after that, I ended up buying this 4K TRS-80 computer and programming it in BASIC. And I loved it. And It got me hooked on puzzles. And the idea of a computer is that, you know, you're trying to get it to do something of value and you have to get all the steps right. And so that has just slowly taken me through my entire career where the puzzles have just changed over time. So first, the puzzles were you know getting this little four k computer to to play games, and you know in my current role, it's uh shepherding the technology and organization and culture of a multi thousand person company along with the rest of the e staff and uh we i love it, but it's still just a puzzle, just a different kind
1: yeah i love it it's uh it's a technologist's mindset for sure, and today we have we have platforms for for young programmers and and young minds like like Scratch, which is a great resource. Um, my, my nephews are involved in, in programming on Scratch and Roblox. Um, what did you begin your programming journey with?
2: So I began my programming journey with BASIC on that TRS-80, and then I also uh, got into Z80 Assembler, which I'm going to tell you, just recently I was rereading a book on Z80 Assembler, and I think it's a great language. Um, It has very simple register assignments. Um, When you look at the chips of today, like the Intel thing, I think they've gotten way over complicated. And and then I started working on other platforms. And the next platform I worked on, surprisingly, was a 64K HP 41 CV calculator. And on that calculator, I worked with the Alaska Department of Energy, and I wrote a program which allowed someone to go around their house and type in their windows and their doors and whether they were single pane glass or double pane glass. And then this little program would go and it would chew for like 45 minutes And it would spit out this this very long ticker tape, because the printers back then were on silver foil, and it actually burned the the printing into the silver foil. And it would print out this long ticker tape of what you could do with the $1,000 Alaska credit to improve your house. And so people would take this long silver roll of tape to the Alaska Department of Energy. And they get approval. And then they'd go to a contractor and they'd get their house energy improved. And I was so excited about this program because it helped a couple hundred households, uh, at least while I was using it, it helped a couple hundred households have better energy savings.
1: That's incredible. And how old were you at that time?
2: Uh, let's see. I was uh, a freshman in high school. So how old are you when you're a freshman in high school? Like 16, 17?
1: Yeah, yeah. About about that, for sure. I also know that you've worked at a number of really large companies like like Oracle, Amazon. Um, tell us what it's like going from from a company like that to a smaller startup uh, type culture, maybe like at Grab and even at, at MongoDB to a to a large degree.
2: It's been an interesting journey. So the very first company I worked for as a major, as a real company was a construction management company up in Alaska. And it was like 12 of us and four of us were programmers. And, um, I love that culture. I love just getting in and doing what needed to get done. There was no process, there was no overhead. And then I went to NASA and while I was at Caltech, I I worked over at JPL and wow, there was a lot of process, process and overhead. And, um, but it was all good, and, and we were doing real science, and it was fun, and the people there were just so earnest about what they were doing, and then you mentioned I worked at a couple other big companies, and one of them was Oracle, and one of the things I loved about Oracle is even though it was a big company, they were relentlessly in pursuit of technical perfection. That was it, and if it took three more years to get the database out, but it was the right database, it was, it was was that's what they would do. And then I'll compare and contrast that with AWS, where AWS, it's about getting the release out. It's about delighting customers with whatever you can get out next quarter. And, and we take on a lot of technical debt at AWS. We uh, do a lot of things in order to serve the customer just as quickly as possible. So all of those different things put together showed me that there's a lot of different ways to get things done. Um, at companies. And when you go to a new company, the advice I'd give someone is listen for your first 30 60 days. Listen to what they value, listen to how they make decisions. That's great advice. Nick, you wanted to jump in.
0: Um yeah, I'd actually like to jump in, in some of your career history. So I mean, what uh, I mean other than MongoDB of course, where did you have the most fun um in your in your technical career? What company? would you say it was Oracle or
2: Oh, that's hard. I've, I've had fun every place I've worked. Um, but I'll give you a couple of fun incidents. One was in 1993, Oracle decided to enter the interactive video business. And one of the most fun things about that was we were on a flight over to see British Telecom and we were selling our video server. Now, it's really important to note that not a single line of code had been written for the video server and we were going over to a major telco to sell it. And on the way over, this is long before the internet, my friend Bill and I, we had this three inch thick MPEG spec. And the goal was that by the time we landed in London, we had to be experts on digital video. And and we were, and we sold the contract to British Telecom and it worked really well. Unfortunately, we then spent the next three years working seven days a week Catching up with the promises we'd made and delivering those products. We built a team of over 100 people, and it was just incredible getting a bunch of people together, taking all process constraints away, and just saying, get stuff done. And it was just, it was one of my favorite times in my career. Even though we were working seven days a week and sleeping under our desks. And, you know, all those things, it was still the most fun time we've ever had. In fact, we recently had a reunion of about 50 of us, uh, 27 years later, and we still remember that time as the best time in our careers.
0: It's fantastic. So
1: um, there's a lot of folks that may not know um, how you take the reins of a company like MongoDB. And what are some of the things that you're looking at initially as, um, you know, you mentioned you're going to listen. Um, initially, and I love that, uh, kind of see the lay of the land, see how things work, I suppose. But um, I'm, I'm curious what it's like to, to kind of take the technical reins of a company like MongoDB. And, and what are you thinking about as you start your first 30 days?
2: Well, the first thing I'll say is, is that as a CTO, I think that I'm not so much planning on taking the reins as you know being an advisor. As you go up in your career, you know, go up an org chart, You find that actually you have less and less direct control and it's more control through influence and through being a counselor and through being, uh, you know, uh, bringing overview and viewpoints and judgment. And so what I'm hoping to do at MongoDB is talk to people about the technical directions we're taking, listen to them, bring my experience of what's worked or not, and, and guide the company on its path. And the areas we're looking at right now are, number one, we have a mission-critical cloud, uh, multi-cloud database that's a general-purpose database, and I want to get that message out there. The second thing is I really, really want to focus on our personas our developers who use our product, our DBAs who manage the product, and I want to understand them. And then I want to be the bridge that brings that back into the engineering organization and really helps the engineers who all they really want to do is delight customers. And I'm going to help build that bridge between them.
0: So you're relatively new to the company still, but have you established any of the personas yet? Or uh, you want to shed some light into that?
2: Um, Yeah, so, uh, you know, the personas that the company currently focuses on are the developer persona. And obviously, there's the DBA persona. But it turns out there's a lot of other people using our database. There's people uh, using it, uh, Atlas Data Lake for analytics. There's people standing up websites using search. There's mobile developers using Realm. And all of those people I'm learning about, and learning about how they actually can, you know, write modern applications quickly.
1: Great. So Mark, I also see that you worked at NASA. And I mean, that's fascinating to me. What is it like to work at NASA? Can you give us any secrets?
2: Well, I don't know if I can give you any any you know meaningful secrets for like getting a job there or anything. But one of the things that I liked most about NASA is that it's just a. I worked at JPL in particular. And JPL is a campus of about 4000 people who all they are is scientists who just want to get science done and um i worked in a semiconductor lab and i worked with some of the you know smartest people i've ever worked with frankly and what i loved about it was this this amalgamation of software with hardware with science and it was it was pretty awesome because like one of the projects i did was we were building gallium arsenide chips for testing And we had this huge bakeout machine, which had to get the interior of the bakeout machine down to, you know, ultra, ultra high vacuum, like even more vacuum than interstellar space. And so it was about a three week or four week bakeout process. And so I wrote the software that would go around and do heaters and coolers all around the machine, trying to heat up the parts to get the atoms to wander around. And then the liquid nitrogen uh, nodules that the atoms would stick to. And writing that software was totally awesome. And here I was working with scientists doing real science, you know, sitting there writing Fortran on a VAX. And that was pretty cool. <laughs> I was going uh, to ask you what the uh,
1: language is. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Uh,
2: well, yeah, yeah, it was Fortran. Um, and the other um, project that I did there that was kind of fun was we were gifted with the uh, JPL's first scanning tunneling microscope. And we were able to write a program on it in about a month, which allowed us to actually take the needle down and work out individual atoms on the surface. And the whole stupid thing was about the size of a college refrigerator um, that you might have in a dorm room. And, you know, here we were bringing up pictures on our little one megabit, uh, sorry, one megabyte microvax of pictures of an individual atoms. And we thought that was just so cool. So yeah, those were some of the projects we did. It was, it was great.
0: So this, this might sound like a silly question, um, but what does JPL mean? Is that like a specific uh, NASA branch somewhere in the United States or?
2: I'm unfamiliar. Oh, that's a great question. So JPL is the Jet Propulsion Lab, which is in Pasadena, California, and it has the uh, dubious distinction of where uh, Goddard, when he first built his rockets, he was uh, experimenting with his rockets on the Caltech campus. And there had been some, shall we say, incidents where things had run into things and things had exploded. So they then kicked him off campus about 12 miles away into this canyon up in Pasadena to experiment with his rockets, and out of that came the Jet Propulsion Lab. And so JPL runs all the Voyager missions. Uh, you've heard of Cur- Curiosity on Mars. All the rover missions; those are all run out of JPL. Amazing. So
1: we were talking about um, your trajectory. Uh, you've obviously held some some great positions at really great companies. And uh, one of the things that I found is that when I'm working in a really high functioning successful team. Um, there are a couple of things in common and one of them I always see is that we hire really well. and I'm wondering Mark, if you can help maybe some of the folks that are listening would like to work at a company like like Oracle or Amazon or even MongoDB. Um, what kind of advice would you give to, to folks that, that are listening that, um, that may want that are shooting for uh, for that type of position?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So I've been managing since I was about 27, 28, and uh that in itself has taken a lot of a lot of time to get better at. But I think you hit the nail on the head with great people. And so when I interview, every company has its own interview skills. Um I look for a number of things. One of the things I look for is just curiosity. Um, Because when you're not managing someone, you need them to be going and figuring stuff out. So I love people who are just curious, curious all the time about technical stuff, about processes, all of that. So the other thing I look for is I look for people who've stayed deep technically. And what that means is that, you know, no matter what they've done, maybe they think they're one of the best people in the world at it. Like if it's assembly language, they know how the chip works. Or if it's databases, they know how the consistency model works. Or if it's application development, they know everything about the framework. What I find a little bit dangerous in today's world is people will do these two to three year stints at four or five companies in a row. And they end up being 15 years into their career, sadly, with only two or three years of repeated experience. And so my advice would be stay deep. And then when you interview, show that curiosity, show you know, how much you love to learn, because you know, we shouldn't be hiring for expertise. We should be hiring for curiosity, ability to learn, and ability to work with others.
1: That's great advice. That's um, some advice I received from the founders of the company that I worked at previously, Medallia. They were relentless about their, uh, their their passion and and curiosity, as well as that um, that mindset around uh, being open. Um, go ahead, Nick.
0: Yeah, so I, I have a, a, a question regarding because you mentioned uh, frameworks, learning, kind of going deep into the framework. If that's kind of your thing, um, do you feel like the landscape around that has changed a little bit? Because now, I mean. We're talking ten years ago there probably was maybe one or two frameworks for any given language, but now we're looking at languages and technologies that have a hundred different frameworks, and sometimes these companies um are using a hundred different frameworks within their their stack um, for their product does Does this have any kind of impact to you
2: well you know it, a lot of that's over on the mobile side, and sure you know from what I've seen from what I've seen, you still have to be deep. you still have to get it working right. Um, at Grab, we built this mobile app and we used a number of frameworks as well. But at the end of the day, we started settling on just a couple, which we just got really, really intimate with, uh, Grab had to have its mobile app work on, you know, hundreds of different models of devices, uh, all the way from low powered devices to the latest, you know, Apple or Samsung device. And so we had to get really, really deep. Um, you know, I'm always a little suspicious when I hear that someone's working with a hundred or so frameworks (laughs) or things like that. Um, you know, just to be really honest with you. Um, so I'm, I, I'm curious there. Probably an
0: over-exaggeration, but uh, it, it does sometimes but seem like 10. there's a lot going on. Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: Even so, 10 makes me wonder if they're doing the right thing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I feel you. Uh, so in regards to uh, going deep and being good at what you do and, and really focusing on things, how do you, how do you manage a work-life balance? Um, between personal life and uh, being skillful and, and on top of things at work?
2: So, you know, I'm I'm like a lot of people who grew up with tech in, the, in their teens, and I probably work a little bit too much. There's no doubt about that. At the same time, I've learned that things like budgeting hours between your work and between your home, they don't typically work that well. What I found is that sometimes your life needs more time, and sometimes your work needs more time. And so the way I do it is I try to work out contracts with my work and contracts with my home for, hey, this month is going to be really, really hard for me um, at home, or this month's gonna be really hard for me at work. Like right now, I'm I'm moving between houses. And, you know, Dave, my boss here at MagoDB, has been completely accommodating of all the different schedules and needs I've had. I think what's most important is that you're open and transparent about that balance with with everyone that you're with and you don't make promises you can't keep.
0: So, um, in, in a previous example, when you mentioned the the most fun that you had, uh, and that was with the, the video encoder, right? Um, you, um, you had this, this, this idea you sold and then you spent, uh, did you say three years working on it seven days a week? Is that what I heard?
2: Yeah, that is what you heard. In fact, we got to the point where people would ask permission to take Sundays off, and we're like, "Of course, you can take Sundays off." But yeah, no, it got—we were working that hard that people would ask permission to take Sundays off.
0: Now, did you ever did you ever come into a scenario where, where something like that um, happened again, where you were working so aggressively, or, I mean, maybe maybe that was maybe you enjoyed that. I, I don't know. Um...
2: Yeah, that was an interesting one. That one was by choice. We had a bunch of you know people in their uh, you know twenties and early thirties who chose to do that. Now, people who had uh, you know family lives, obviously, they weren't required to work like that. But a lot of us just chose to do that because we were so inspired you know to change the world and and frankly that's one of the things that I'm excited about here at MongoDB is that I really really do think that MongoDB has changed the world of application development and will continue to do so in the future and so when you're changing the world you just want to come to work every day you just get up in the morning and you're like you know what little piece am I going to play in that journey today
1: <clears throat> i love that whatever i'm doing I, I i have to i have to be jumping out of bed i have to be excited about what i'm doing Otherwise, I think it's time to to find a new position, and um, that's something at at MongoDB that I've just been, you know, so fortunate. The the product set is so compelling, the, the 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 people are so smart, and and the the direction, the space that the product is in, is just so exciting to me. Speaking of of direction, you know, what are you thinking about in terms of um, of the direction for? MongoDb products have you is it too soon yet to to start that conversation?
2: Well, that's a great question. I don't think it's too soon to start the conversation. It's probably too soon to start uh, you know, I'm on like day thirty or thirty five or something. It's probably too soon to start drawing conclusions. but, I, I do think that the direction is going to be, number one, continuing with developers, just continuing to delight developers. Uh, we've done that recently by launching Atlas Data Lake uh, so that developers can do analytics in their product and search so that they don't have to stand up a separate uh, database to do search. Um, I also think that one of the things we're seeing is we're seeing more personas at a company use our products. We're seeing data scientists use our products. We're seeing business analysts use our products. And so I think part of the direction is gonna be making sure that we can delight all of our stakeholders. And that's gonna, that's gonna take some, some changes to the product over the next couple of years. Another direction which I'm really excited about is uh, migration, making it really easy to get data in and out of the MongoDB product set. And so that's an area where, you know, we have some utilities in that area, but I think we can really grow those to make it transparent for people to move their, you know, legacy relational stores like Oracle and SQL Server, move those over into MongoDB where they can work on them, you know, faster and better and a lot cheaper as well.
1: Mm. What about this, the, the relational to, to document-oriented space? I mean, relationals had its time. It, it was a logical view on how to store data that, in my opinion, was, was built with the constraints of the technology of the time, right? I mean, we store data in, in rows and columns and tables because it helps us reduce the number of times that we duplicate data. And that worked in a time when disk storage was extremely expensive. Um, document-oriented databases let us get more flexible. Um, tell me about the transition you've made as a technologist coming from the world of relational, you know, working at, at Oracle and Amazon. Any, any stories to tell us about um, that transition and, and your thoughts on the technology uh, transition from relational to, to document orientation?
2: Yeah, I think it's a very interesting transition. I think, you know, I'll, I'll just point out that uh, COD's paper was written in June of 1970, which was uh, last time I checked 50 years and two months ago as of this podcast. And I mean, it's an amazing paper and relational algebra is amazing. And what's interesting about it, like you say, is it's correct. It allows you to think about things in a pretty powerful way that the industry needed at the time. However, what it engendered was a way of writing software, which frankly is not often the way humans think. You know, humans don't think about having things in 20 different files for one patient. Imagine going to your medical office and, you know, you show up for an appointment and she says you want to change your address and the, uh, you know, the assistant goes over and has to go to another filing cabinet to get your address. And then when you want to say, oh yeah, my phone number changed too, the person goes over to another filing cabinet to get your phone number file. And that's just not the way humans think. And so over time, like you say, computers have gotten fast enough that we can actually have a model like MongoDB's document model where we use computers in the way we want to use computers, not in the way computers are amenable to being used. Is that kind of what you were thinking of there?
1: Yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah, it, it just seems more logical. And I've found uh, over the last five years at MongoDB, it seems like every change in direction that's made, every decision about how the, the, the database has changed is made not for the constraints on the technology, but for rather for the desire and the the flexibility of the developer. How can we make it easier and more natural and more logical for developers to use the data persistence layer that MongoDB offers? So, so how yeah. do we continue yeah. in that path and and align the product continually to to developers?
2: So one of the things I think that's most important about MongoDB and one of the reasons I was so excited to come here is that not only do developers have less constraints with MongoDB than, or with document databases in general than with relational, but the company itself has less constraints. Um, we provide the language drivers, we provide the, the drivers that talk to the servers, we provide you know, MQL, the language itself, and we provide the backend servers. And what this means is as people are pivoting through uh, some big changes going on in the industry, which I'll describe in a minute or two, as they're going through those changes, MongoDB can actually change our language and change our drivers to adjust to those. And so... For example, we have drivers, in I think it's 13 languages right now, and you can program with your native data structures. When I first started programming against relational, as magical as I think the relational model is, I was using Oracle's call interface and Pro-C and all the different ways you could put SQL into a language, and it just never worked. And then people came along with ORMs, and I mean, ORMs are, are, I'm going to speak directly here, they are a sin visited upon the technical community. Um, number one, they're hard to program against, and and God forbid, number two, they do terrible things to the underlying data store a lot of the time. So what's going on in the industry right now is we're moving from monolithic, centrally controlled application development to distributed Microservices based development. Now, why do I bring that up? Why does that have anything to do with databases or the document model? It means that what we're doing is we're building up small operational data stores that sit behind a service. And those small operational data stores want to be iterated on many times a week. They want to roll to production, you know, maybe once a day. And you could never do that in the old monolithic world. And so what MongoDB and the document model in general allow you to do is to own your part of the schema, protect it with an API, and then have all the other teams at your company own their part of the schema and protect those with an API. And at Grab, where I worked in Southeast Asia, we ended up across a team of over 1,000 developers doing over 1,100 deployments per week. And that was all based on using a flexible data model on using microservices. And so to answer your question, when I think about what we're doing to help developers be better, we want developers to stand up a microservice, stand up a database behind it, and we want to be able to do that in an hour and start rolling things to production by the end of the day.
1: Wow. So you said something there. So at Grab, 1100 deployments per day? Per week. Per week, per week, but still that's, that's incredible. (laughs) How, how was that even possible?
2: So, you know, the team I worked with at Grab was phenomenal and I'll I'll just give a shout out to all over the mirror. Um, We developed a system called Conveyor that actually did those deployments from, would build, would go through staging, would do those deployments and then would monitor in production, all the metrics around that service and would do auto rollbacks. Now, now the thing I didn't say is we also did about 100 rollbacks per week. And, but most of those rollbacks were automatic, done within a minute. And the system would just say, hey, that piece of software didn't do what it was supposed to do and it would roll it back. And so, you know, we used software to help us develop software. And, you know, that's what MongoDB is about with our drivers, that's what MongoDB is about with our, you know, all the things we're bolting onto the database to make it better. Um, is we just keep using software to make software development easier.
1: Yeah, and I love the idiom, like you touched on this, the idiomatic nature of, of MongoDB in the driver landscape. I just, uh, I'm transitioning into a role where I'm focusing on Swift and developing software with Apple uh, for, for mobile. And, you know, the, the transition is is seamless. I, I take the skills that I have around MongoDB uh, working in JavaScript or PHP or whatever the language is, and I transition it to uh, to Swift Seamlessly, it's um, uh, it's it's quite
0: a um, an amazing thing for sure. So, uh, just just so that we have a little bit of clarity around uh, the eleven hundred deployments and, and the potential one hundred rollbacks, um, uh, what is Grab? Can you put con- some context there for people who have never heard of it? Uh, maybe it'll make more sense on why there are so many deployments in, in a week.
2: Yeah. So, Grab is uh, Southeast Asia's largest ride-hailing company. Um, not only does ride hailing, but does food and uh, financial transactions and deliveries. Um, not really well known in the Western world, uh, but uh, it's the third largest ride hailing company in the world, right after Uber. And, uh, you know, 16,000 employees, big company. And the tech organization was about 2,000 people. And one of the reasons that we did all those deployments every week was that we had broken our technical team up into over 45 tech families and each tech family was this unit and it had a product manager and a data scientist and analysts and it had engineers and these people were chartered to function as a unit very very little top-down management of software development at grab and so these teams would build these microservices and the microservices were tied to the teams. And so each of these teams had quarterly milestones that they were delivering on. And so if you think about 40 teams with, you know, 400 microservices and, you know, 2,000 developers, 1,100 deployments a week, it, it sounds about right. It sounds like software is just rolling out the door every day.
1: Still, the numbers are are pretty impressive. Um, great. So um, Where do we go from here, Mark? Um, Is there anything else you wanted to to discuss while we're on the podcast?
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things that I find is really interesting is, you know, people adopting the cloud and managed services. And, you know, what does that mean? So, you know, we talk, Google has this famous uh, phrase they use called toil. And toil is work that has nothing to do with customer value. It is work that is not, does not make you feel smarter or more clever. And so much of what people do these days still in software is toil. And standing up a database on your own machine, managing it, that's toil. Standing up a search engine is toil. And so when I was at Amazon in RDS, we ran a a large fleet of managed databases and we loved Having all those people, these customers would come, they'd move their databases over, and their DBAs would get to be able to do less toil and more work around application design and development and management. Well, at MongoDB, we have the same thing. We have Atlas, and Atlas is our managed service, which we're slowly pulling all of our different capabilities into. And Atlas allows you to stand up something and get it going immediately. And if it's okay, I'd like to tell a little bit of a story about my journey on that.
0: I'd love that go for yeah. it.
2: So I will admit, I will admit that in my first 30 days, I was in a meeting that was kind of boring. And I wasn't getting much value for the meeting. And you know, everyone at Mongo, I'm not going to tell you what meeting that was. But there we were in a meeting, I didn't really wasn't really entranced by the content. So I went to Atlas, I stood up a cluster, I loaded 350 megabytes of sample data into the cluster, I downloaded compass, our tool, I modified some of the data. I built an aggregation framework, which went and summed up a lot of that data and did different stuff on it. It only had like five stages in this cool aggregation framework. I downloaded charts, I learned how to use it, and I stood up a chart. I had never used any of these products before, and it was 19 minutes start to finish to do all that. And to me, that just epitomizes what we can do these days with managed services with products which are written with the developer in mind. And, um, you know, obviously I hacked that all together in 19 minutes, but the, the the ability to be able to never have used this service before, never have downloaded any of those products before, and actually get a graph of the data in a database in 19 minutes, I think is is just phenomenal.
1: That is phenomenal. And I love the story. And I think what makes it even more profound is how, how much time had you spent with MongoDB previously?
2: I'm going to confess very, very little. Um, you know, like I'd never downloaded Mongo. I'd never, uh, uh, you're sorry, I'd never downloaded Compass or Charts. I'd never uh, stood up a cluster and done real data analysis out before.
1: You know, I, I'm getting this. I, I, I get it from the, the discussion previously and the things that you've talked about. But why why MongoDB? I don't think we really gave you an opportunity to talk about, uh, talk about that at length. But why MongoDB?
2: So, why MongoDB is is a great question. Um, About a year ago, while I still worked at Grab, I was sitting with one of the seminal people in the relational database world, a friend of mine named Hal Berenson. And we were sitting there and we were drinking together. And we came to the realization that our entire careers had been centered around databases and centered around the promises we were making to developers. And we got kind of depressed because databases remain Hard to use databases for the relational databases, which is all I was thinking about at the time, remain hard to program. They don't stay up reliably, they're unpredictable. And we just sat there and we said to each other, are we really going to end our careers? having failed at something we started our careers doing and it was a very depressing moment frankly i'll just i'll just be very direct it was very depressing and so when the mongodb opportunity came out of the woodwork that conversation haunted me after i had it and the reason i'm at mongodb is i think we can actually finish off what we started so many years ago in the 70s and 80s and we can make it deb- database so stunningly easy to use that uh, it's just delightful, and it has all those promises that we've been promising for decades about ease of use, about reliability, about stability, about predictability, about cost management um, that we've been doing. And so that's my goal. My goal is to to basically put a put a bow on my career and make these databases magical and easy to use.
1: That's um, that's great, Mark, and and that's a terrific story. So you've given us some great advice on uh, what you look for in in employees at MongoDB. How about in senior leadership? What do you look for in your in your leadership team?
2: So over time, what I've noticed is that as people change in their careers, they start out as an IC, they might become a manager or a principal engineer, the job actually changes. And unfortunately, while we interview people for, for different levels of jobs, when we promote people, we often don't train them. And we often don't teach them that the job is different. It's a fundamentally different job. And so when I look at senior leadership, I, I try to figure out whether they're going to succeed in a role that's fundamentally different than, you know, than what they had earlier in their career. And anyone who knows me is going is to be ready for the five things. And the five things I look for are complexity, ability to deal with truly complex problems, ambiguity, The ability to see an ambiguous situation and get enough data to make a decision without getting too much data. Dealing with ambiguity is is really important as a senior leader. Third is sense of urgency. When you're a senior leader, the sense of urgency comes from you. If if there's no one above you in the organization and you don't have a sense of urgency, by definition, the, the organization won't move quickly. Fourth is judgment. I look for people who can make decisions and and sadly judgment is something which is very very hard to teach and so I I look for people and I listen to decisions they've made in their careers and I try to to figure out whether this person will make great great uh you know answers there and then finally I look for care I look for compassion does this person take everything that they're doing and do they bring compassion to how they work with employees, how they work with customers, how they work with partners. And that means that they're going to be long-term successful in everything they're doing in those areas. And so all companies have this, you know, checklist of things they look for. You know, those five things are my checklist that I look for in senior leaders.
1: That's fantastic. Well, terrific. Mark, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule and and talking with us. I think we've... um... We've learned a lot about you, and um, I'm really looking forward to, to having you at MongoDB and, and looking for that bow that you put on MongoDB. So, um,
0: uh, Nick, anything else before we close out? Uh, yeah, I'll go with the, the typical closeout question. I mean, if, if people wanted to get in touch with you, uh, do you are you on social media? How, how would you like people to engage?
2: So uh, I do have a Twitter account, and that's one way, which is um, Mark Loves Tech. That handle probably doesn't come as a surprise. And then uh, I actually I have no trouble with people emailing me directly, and it's mp at mongodb.com. Just reach out to me directly. I'd love to chat with any of you. I also am very open to LinkedIn reach outs as well.
1: Terrific. Well, I hope this is not the last. I hope that this becomes a recurring thing. We'd love to have you uh, on the podcast talking about your transition with MongoDB and and, uh, and the roadmap, of course, and uh, things that you can share. And uh, with that, I think we'll close it out. Thanks again, Mark. Have a great day.
2: Thanks very much, guys. Very nice to meet you.
0: We're hoping that you got a lot of value out of this podcast episode and learned a little bit about Mark Porter, the CTO of MongoDB. If you have questions about MongoDB, you can ask about them in our community forums at community.mongodb.com you can also check out our developer portal, which is developer.mongodb.com, which has a lot of different useful tutorials on a variety of topics ranging from MongoDB Atlas to Realm and a bunch of other great things. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, it would mean a lot to us if you went into Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening from and left it a five-star rating and review. So that way other listeners can get an idea of what they're getting themselves into when they click that play button.